Get to Old Navy now because this week only there's a new red hot deal every single day. Plus up to 50% off store wide. That's up to 50% off your favorite Old Navy styles. Also get $10 off your next purchase when you buy online and pick up in store. So hurry in and get today's wow worthy fashion pieces at a price you won't believe. Only at Old Navy. Valid 712 to 19. Select styles only. $10 off valid in store only. One time use. Excludes clearance, gift card, register lane items, jewelry. Hey ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Think It Ain't Illegal Yet. I'm your host, St. Clinton. On this show, we'll be playing some poetry, spoken words. And other things about political and social issues going on around the world, both past, present, and future, which will hopefully make you think. I am the universal mother with a universal plea. We are the mothers of innocent child. Nations of war bring conflicts so wild. Since men could walk and think on their feet, to our lands they sailed with their war-hungry fleet. From Vietnam to the Middle East, African shores to European streets, wars have ravaged our hearth and home, a fact world leaders never seem to bemoan. Armies recruit our sons to fight. Manipulating young minds just is not right. Leave them alone, don't abuse our boys. Stop using the young as your foul war toys. Soldiers stand with heads held high, tools of death pointed up to the sky. Wooden soldiers marching so proud, ignoring our pleas, though our shouts be loud. Showers of death as we work in our fields, artillery and tanks, we've become human shields. Wings of a demon, manned and drone, bombs from blue sky rain hell on our home. Battles for land, religion, and greed. Men never consider a mother's need. We are the victims of ungodly desire. Our children suffer when hate is on fire. Bandaged babies carried home, children on crutches, so afraid to roam. Our hospitals echo with cries of despair, while doctors and nurses rush to repair. Families bury dead kin every day, children shelled and lost while at play. Caught in a crossfire of bullets and bombs, our pleas for mercy become mournful songs. Hiding in corners, cowering in fear. Gunfire and shell sound all too near. A nation's child was buried today, a victim of wars that seemed the only way. In a cemetery near our home, a teddy bear rests against a child's tombstone. A young spirit ravaged by the winds of war, an innocent babe who deserved so much more. Governments from nations far and near show little conscience, little fear, to ravage our people, burn our homes, our children become prisoners, afraid to roam. Men of conscience, diamonds in the rough. Politicians and generals know only how to act tough. Please trade your weapons for seed and grain. Stop showering us with bullets, your demon reign. A mother of this earth with hopes and fears. My children should know love through all their years. I am all mothers, my family is dear, but men who make war have created great fear. Why must our children suffer such pain? Why must soldiers torch us for gain? When will men learn from the past? Conquest by nations will never last. I am the universal mother with a universal plea. I have not fought in a war, though I fight war itself. I try to bring peace just by being myself. The cards we were dealt does not determine if we win or lose, but life is a gamble and we all have to choose who we wish to become regardless of our past. It is hard to see the light because the darkness is vast. However, this is not how it has to be. It is bigger than us, definitely bigger than me. Do not drop to your knees unless you are praying. Know to bow down to no one despite what they're saying. You control your destiny and no one else. So I know what is ahead of me, and so should yourself. The fires I douse should have never been started. Innocence can definitely be burned by someone cold-hearted. Now the dearly departed look down upon us. 
Our decisions decide if they smile or frown upon us. We must let them rejoice and do things filled with joy for our children, our future, each girl and boy. For we are men and women that spend time that is borrowed, not promised the next day, though we build for tomorrow. Some hearts are filled with sorrow, I pray that that's drained. And our hearts pump out love and it flows through our veins. For what are we to gain by fighting each other? Death only brings mourning as we kill one another. One morning will see us as brothers and sisters and give foreigners refuge the night of their twisters. Tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, disasters. These are all natural, but together we can heal nature faster. We all need love and so does our planet. For without love, we all perish and vanish. So to those at the top, from us at the bottom, we call cease to all wars, for we've learned for those fought in. Peace and love is the strongest force. It beats in our hearts and seeps through our pores. I pour my heart out so you can see what it's like. For those of us with no pies, not eating a slice. You won't share a peace and you do not preach peace. You cannot see what is most important, to say the least. You could scream at me till your face turns red. But I won't hold my breath till I'm blue in my face. You believe in genocide as if we're better off dead. Not realizing we are one human race. We must shelter the homeless and feed the hungry and see the value of life and not our money. Our future is bright, though now it seems like an eclipse. Cause soldiers load clips, hearts turn hollow like their bullets tip. My words are heard by the blind as the deaf read my lips, as I speak for the mute whose voice don't exist. As I lead people in the right direction, you will see how many can be affected by affection. For I make connections that can never be broken. We will try to bring change. This poem's a token of my appreciation for those who stand up for righteousness. Love is the strongest. There is no fighting this. So take my hand as we stand palm to palm. As we all come together, daughters, sons, fathers, and moms. And we walk through the chaos and leave it so calm. As we let our leaders know, peace is not brought by bombs. Who are you? What's your name? You know, you know who I am. Who are you? What's your name? I'm Amazing Spicy Man. Don't shake your head. Don't roll your eyes. The truth is dead. The facts are lies. Don't shake your head. Don't tap your toe. Shazam, bali ho, tally ho. Who are you? What's your name? You know who I am. Who are you? What's your name? I'm Amazing Spicy Man. The president said the sky is green, water is red, and coal is clean. Now that's the truth, all you need to know. Skeptics and critics, go, go, go. What's your name? I'm Amazing Spicy Man. I am the man I chose to be. It's a gift, a curse, it's my destiny. I'm a human spicy spicer man. I'm a truther slicer dicer man. I hang all night upside down. I spin alt-right round and round. I sold my soul long ago. Shazam, bali ho, tally ho! Who are you? What's your name? You know who I am. Who are you? What's your name? I'm Amazing Spicy Man. Amazing Spicy Man. Amazing Spicy You've heard the criticism before. 
that President Obama won't use the phrase radical Islamic terrorism. It appears that the shooter uh, was inspired by uh, various extremist uh, information uh, that was disseminated uh, over the Internet. He hasn't used the phrase before, and as Olivier Knox at Yahoo News points out, Mr. Obama almost certainly won't in the future. Olivier set it up. Well, you know, Gordon, this has come up uh, basically since 9-11. This is a long-running debate about presidential rhetoric about American enemies and the war on terrorism. And it boils down to two factors. One is that American presidents are very hesitant to suggest in any way that Islam is a motivating force for this kind of violence. Uh, you know, President Bush was extremely careful to disassociate Islam from the 9-11 attacks, for example. He went to the Islamic Center of Washington, D.C., six days after those attacks to say, Islam is peace. These people have tried to hijack uh, a great religion. The same applies to Barack Obama. What they're trying to do is not needlessly alienate America's Muslim partners and allies in the global war on terrorism, but also they really, really, really don't want to legitimize the, the actions of these kinds of extremists by letting them cloak their violence in religion. But don't our Muslim allies dislike what these guys do in terms of, uh, as President Bush said, hijacking the religion? They absolutely do. The challenge is uh, that sometimes things get lost in translation. Sometimes when a uh, when a when an American politician says radical Islam, uh, some folks in in some of the more uh, uh, orthodox forms of, uh, of Islam get offended. In 2006, when George W. Bush started talking about radical Islam um, as, a, as a force behind these kinds of attacks, the Saudi government came out and said, hey, 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 hold on. This is terrorism. It is not Islam. You have to separate the two. But these terrorists at times, right, say they're inspired or directed by ISIS, so they cry out, Allahu Akbar? Absolutely. Absolutely right. There, there is, but there's a difference between letting people uh, claim that they are acting on behalf of a religion and endorsing that claim. And that's the big concern for, for now two American presidents. Um, just because someone says they're acting on behalf of, of God does not mean they are. And presidents have just tried not to legitimize this kind of rhetoric. Interesting. We're speaking with Olivier Knox, chief Washington correspondent at Yahoo News. His piece is called Here's Why Obama Does Not Refer to Radical Islamic Terrorism. All right, so I thought I understood somebody say, too, that by President Obama not calling it this, uh, he's failing to identify the enemy, and that makes it more difficult to defeat. That is a recurring criticism of President Obama's rhetoric on this issue. Uh, Ted Cruz has said, has said stuff along those lines. But uh, Democratic House member Tulsi Gabbard has as well. There is a strain uh, of this argument that is, look, by not labeling it radical Islamic terrorism, you are failing to diagnose the problem, which means that you will fail to find the cure to the problem. Uh, that's, that's also been running since essentially 9-11. Um, the, the, the debate... Uh, ends up being about policies that might target American Muslims, for example. So um, one of the things that motivated both President Bush and now Barack Obama is that there have been occasionally some reprisals, some retaliation, some uh, attacks on American Muslims. And they worry that calls, uh, for example, from Donald Trump to ban Muslim immigration to the United States or to uh, surveil uh, all, of, all of the mosques in America, things like that, they worry about those things uh, targeting individual populations in the United States, the Muslim population specifically, in the United States. Olivier Knox, Washington correspondent at Yahoo News. America's First News is online all the time. Follow us on Twitter at This Morning Show. Like us on Facebook or send us an email. This Morning at CompassMediaNetworks.com. I got in the mental. And some began to say the threat. I'll talk about the threat that was out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our six white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. You can accept it. You will leave those state troopers blooded with their own barbarity if you can accept it. 
you will do something that will transform conditions here in Alabama. So I'm not worried this afternoon, however dark it may be, however difficult it may be, I know that it is true, the truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yes, sir. That is another part of that great statement, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed the earth will rise again. The Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. Now let me proclaim here and now that I am still convinced that the philosophy and practice of non-violence affords the more excellent way to improve the inadequacies existing in the American social system. method of non-violence resistance is effective in that it has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defenses and weakens his morale, and at the same time it works on his conscience. I believe we will win it because the goal of it is time to reorder our national priorities. All those who now speak of goodwill and who praise the work of such groups as the President's Commission now have the gravest responsibility to stand up and act for the social changes that are necessary to conquer racism in America. If we as a society fail, I fear that we will learn very shortly that racism is a sickness unto death. I learned already in this office that the difficult decisions always come to this desk. I must admit that many of them do not look at all the same as the hypothetical questions that I have answered freely and perhaps too fast on previous occasions. My customary policy is to try and get all the facts and to consider the opinions of my countrymen and to take counsel with my most valued friends. But these seldom agree and in the end the decision is mine. To procrastinate, to agonize, and to wait for a more favorable turn of events that may never come, or more compelling external pressures that may as well be wrong as right, is itself a decision of sorts and a weak and potentially dangerous course for a president to follow. I have promised to uphold the Constitution, to do what is right as God gives me to see the right, and to do the very best that I can for America. I have asked your help and your prayers, not only when I became president, but many times since. The Constitution is the supreme law of our land and it governs our actions as citizens. Only the laws of God, which govern our consciences, are superior to it. As we are a nation under God, so I am sworn to uphold our laws with the help of God. And I have sought such guidance and searched my own conscience with special diligence to determine the right thing for me to do with respect to my predecessor in this place, Richard Nixon, and his loyal wife and family. Theirs is an American tragedy in which we all, all have played a part. It could go on and on and on, or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that. And if I can, I must. There are no 
historic or legal precedents to which I can turn in this matter, none that precisely fit the circumstances of a private citizen who has resigned the presidency of the United States. But it is common knowledge that serious allegations and accusations hang like a sword over our former president's head, threatening his health, as he tries to reshape his life, a great part of which was spent in the service of this country and by the mandate of its people. After years of bitter controversy and divisive national debate, I have been advised and I am compelled to conclude that many months and perhaps more years will have to pass before Richard Nixon could obtain a fair trial by jury in any jurisdiction of the United States under governing decisions of the Supreme Court. I deeply believe in equal justice for all Americans, whatever their station or former station. The law, whether human or divine, is no respecter of persons, but the law is a respecter of reality. The facts, as I see them, are that a former president of the United States Instead of enjoying equal treatment with any other citizen accused of violating the law, would be cruelly and excessively penalized either in preserving the presumption of his innocence or in obtaining a speedy determination of his guilt in order to repay a legal debt to society. During this long period of delay and potential litigation, ugly passions would again be aroused and our people would again be polarized in their opinions and the credibility of our free institutions of government would again be challenged at home and abroad in the end the courts might well hold that richard nixon had been denied due process and the verdict of history would even more be inconclusive with respect to those charges arising out of the period of his presidency of which I am presently aware. But it is not the ultimate fate of Richard Nixon that most concerns me. Though surely it deeply troubles every decent and every compassionate person. My concern is the immediate future of this great country. In this, I dare not depend upon my personal sympathy as a longtime friend of the former president, nor my professional judgment as a lawyer, and I do not. As president, my primary concern must always be the greatest good of all the people of the United States, whose servant I am. As a man, my first consideration is to be true to my own convictions and my own conscience. My conscience tells me clearly and certainly that I cannot prolong the bad dreams that continue to reopen a chapter that is closed. My conscience tells me that only I, as president, have the constitutional power to firmly shut and seal this book. My conscience tells me it is my duty not merely to proclaim domestic tranquility, but to use every means that I have to ensure it. I do believe that the buck stops here, that I cannot rely upon public opinion polls to tell me what is right. I do believe that right makes might, and that if I am wrong, 
ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God, will receive justice without mercy if I fail to show mercy. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we as a great and good nation can do together to make his goal of peace come true. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Sam Clinton. I just wanted to drop in real quick and say thank you for listening to this show. Whether you listen through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Plus, Player FM, or any other way, I just want to say thank you. Oh, yeah. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation.
from frontier woods in old Kentucky's wild, a Lincoln family blessed with the Abraham child. Destined to lead a great nation in strife, Lincoln would serve a distinguished political life. An adept axeman and woodsman of fame, a postmaster, barrister, and surveyor of claim, a circuit court lawyer through Illinois State, a statesman with extraordinary powers of debate. Southern traditions both old and vile, no freedom for a black slave child, monocles and shackles of humankind, to Lincoln were instruments of cruel minds. Slavery's sin had sullied a nation, an abomination to Lincoln, not of God's creation. For Lincoln, no nation could stand divided. Men who foster slavery must always be chided. A Republican candidate without Southern support, an articulate statesman with great powers to court. He raced against Douglas, a Democrat of great skill. Lincoln became president, a testament to iron will. A man of the people so greatly admired, a top hat and beard, a soul so on fire. Deep piercing eyes that see into men's hearts, a burning desire that a nation not live apart. Confederate secession greeted the new president. Without their slavery, the South would not remain resident. At Fort Sumter, a cruel civil war would begin. A great trial for Lincoln, for his union must win. A northern army from Washington marched south, but battle with Confederates left great doubt. At Manassas Town, the rebels would win, the first skirmish of many that would kill many kin. Shiloh and Gettysburg, to name but a few, the blood of their brothers were no longer new. Families torn asunder by hatred and war, soldiers laid siege to settle old scores. Lee, Jackson, and Ulysses S. Grant, generals who led a nation's bloody war chant. In an Appomattox courthouse, a surrender was reached. A nation reunited, a great wrong had been breached. For Lincoln, the president, his nation was saved, his quest for man's freedom that he rightly so craved. At Gettysburg, he proclaimed that all men are the same. His inspirational words earned him a great name. A conspiracy of heart for men of ill will, a decision that a president must soon be killed. An actor of fame with a pistol concealed arrives at a playhouse to seal a damned deal. A shadowy figure took form in the dark, in old Ford Seether, the president his mark. While Lincoln and family watched a new Washington play, John Wilkes Booth made an unholy foray. Lincoln assassinated by a single gunshot, a victim of madness and sinister plot. An Illinois tomb marks his last resting place. A nation remembers a man of presidential grace. A bold trial lawyer of great esteem, a visionary president with a unifying dream that all men are equal in the sight of the Lord. For Abraham Lincoln, a great nation restored. I have cherished 
the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and, and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Chairman, I join my colleague, Mr. Rangel, in thanking you for giving the junior members of this committee the glorious opportunity of sharing the pain of this inquiry. Mr. Chairman, you are a strong man, and it has not been easy, but we have tried as best we can to give you uh, as much assistance as possible. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today I am an inquisitor, and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total, and I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Who can so properly be the inquisitors for the nation as the representatives of the nation themselves? The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men. And that's what we're talking about. In other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. It is wrong, I suggest, it is a misreading of the Constitution for any member here to assert that for a member to vote for an article of impeachment means that that member must be convinced that the President should be removed from office. The Constitution doesn't say that. The powers relating to impeachment are an essential check in the hands of the body, the legislature, against and upon the encroachments of the executive. The division between the two branches of the legislature, the House and the Senate, assigning to the one the right to accuse and to the other the right to judge. The framers of this Constitution were very astute. They did not make the accusers and the judges and the judges the same person. We know the nature of impeachment. We've been talking about it a while now. It is chiefly designed for the president and his high ministers to somehow be called into account. It is designed to bridle the executive if he engages in excesses. It is designed as a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men. The framers confided in the Congress the power, if need be, to remove the president in order to strike a delicate balance between a president swollen with power 
and grown tyrannical and preservation of the independence of the executive. The nature of impeachment, a narrowly channeled exception to the separation of powers maxim. The Federal Convention of 1787 said that. It limited impeachment to high crimes and misdemeanors and discounted and opposed the term maladministration. It is to be used only for great misdemeanors, so it was said in the North Carolina Ratification Convention. And in the Virginia Ratification Convention, we do not trust our liberty to a particular branch. We need one branch to check the other. No one need be afraid. The North Carolina Ratification Convention, no one need be afraid that officers who commit oppression will pass with immunity. Prosecutions of impeachments will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community, said Hamilton in the Federalist Papers number 65. We divide into parties, more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. I do not mean political parties in that sense. The drawing of political lines goes to the motivation behind impeachment. But impeachment must proceed within the confines of the constitutional term, high crime and misdemeanors. Of the impeachment process, it was Woodrow Wilson who said that nothing short of the grossest offenses against the plain law of the land will suffice to give them speed and effectiveness. Indignation so great as to overgrow party interest may secure a conviction, but nothing else can. Common sense would be revolted if we engaged upon this process for petty reasons. Congress has a lot to do. Appropriations, tax reform, health insurance, campaign finance reform, housing, environmental protection, energy sufficiency, mass transportation. Pettiness cannot be allowed to stand in the face of such overwhelming problems. So today we're not being petty. We're trying to be big because the task we have before us is a big one. This morning, in a discussion of the evidence, we are told that the evidence which purports to support the allegations of misuse of the CIA by the president is thin. We're told that that evidence is insufficient. What that recital of the evidence this morning did not include is what the president did know on June the 23rd, 1972. The president did know that it was Republican money, that it was money from the Committee for the Re-election of the President, which was found in the possession of one of the burglars arrested on June the 17th. What the President did know on the 23rd of June was the prior activities of E. Howard Hunt, which included his participation in the break-in of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, which included Howard Hunt's participation in the Dita Beard ITT affair, which included Howard Hunt's fabrication of cables designed to discredit the Kennedy administration. We were further cautioned today that perhaps these proceedings ought to be delayed because certainly there would be new evidence forthcoming from the President of the United States. There has not even been an obfuscated indication that this committee would receive any additional materials from the president. The committee subpoena is outstanding, and if the president wants to supply that material, the committee sits here. The fact is that on yesterday, the American people waited with great anxiety for eight hours, not knowing whether their president would obey an order of the Supreme Court of the United States. At this point, I would like to juxtapose a few of the impeachment criteria with some of the actions the president has engaged in. Impeachment criteria, James Madison, 
from the Virginia Ratification Convention. If the president be connected in any suspicious manner with any person and there be grounds to believe that he will shelter him, he may be impeached. We have heard time and time again that the evidence reflects the payment to defendants, money. The president had knowledge that these funds were being paid and these were funds collected for the 1972 presidential campaign. We know that the president met with Mr. Henry Peterson 27 times to discuss matters related to Watergate and immediately thereafter met with the very persons who were implicated in the information Mr. Peterson was receiving. The words are, if the president is connected in any suspicious manner with any person and there be grounds to believe that he will shelter that person, he may be impeached. Just a story. Impeachment is attended, is intended for occasional and extraordinary cases where a superior power acting for the whole people is put into operation to protect their rights and rescue their liberties from violations. We know about the Houston plan. We know about the break-in of the psychiatrist's office. We know that there was absolute, complete direction on September 3rd when the president indicated that a surreptitious entry had been made in Dr. Fielding's office after having met with Mr. Ehrlichman and Mr. Young. Protect their rights. Rescue their liberties from violation. The Carolina Ratification Convention impeachment criteria, those are impeachable who behave amiss or betray their public trust. Beginning shortly after the Watergate break-in and continuing to the present time, the President has engaged in a series of public statements and actions designed to thwart the lawful investigation by government prosecutors. Moreover, the President has made public announcements and assertions bearing on the Watergate case, which the evidence will show he knew to be false. These assertions, false assertions, impeachable, those who misbehave, those who behave amiss or betray the public trust. James Madison again at the Constitutional Convention, a president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. The Constitution charges the president with the task of taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. And yet, the president has counseled his aides to commit perjury, willfully disregard the secrecy of grand jury proceedings, conceal surreptitious entry, attempt to compromise a federal judge while publicly displaying his cooperation with the processes of criminal justice. A president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. If the impeachment provision in the Constitution of the United States will not reach the offenses charged here, then perhaps that 18th century Constitution should be abandoned to a 20th century paper shredder. Has the President committed offenses and planned and directed and acquiesced in a, con in a course of conduct which the Constitution will not tolerate? That's the question. We know that. We know the question. We should now forthwith proceed to answer the question. It is reason and not passion which must guide our deliberations, guide our debate, and guide our decision. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. 
and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and distrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own deep despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. So I ask you tonight, to return home, to say a prayer for the family Martin Luther King, yeah, it's true, but more importantly to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love, a prayer for understanding and that compassion of which I spoke. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. And it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Sane 
Quentin. And we've come to the end of Think It Ain't Illegal. Yeah. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And hopefully this episode has made you think and want to make a difference in this world. Now go turn on for the love of poetry and spoken word. And think. Get to Old Navy now, because this week only, there's a new Red Hot deal every single day. Plus, up to 50% off store-wide. That's up to 50% off your favorite Old Navy styles. Also, get $10 off your next purchase when you buy online and pick up in-store. So hurry in and get today's wow-worthy fashion pieces at a price you won't believe. Only at Old Navy. Valid 712 to 19. Select styles only. $10 off valid in-store only. One-time use. Excludes clearance, gift card, register lane items, jewelry. Get to Old Navy now, because this week only, there's a new Red Hot deal every single day. Plus up to 50% off store-wide. That's up to 50% off your favorite Old Navy styles. Also, get $10 off your next purchase when you buy online and pick up in-store. So hurry in and get today's wow-worthy fashion pieces at a price you won't believe. Only at Old Navy. Valid 712 to 19. Select styles only. $10 off valid in-store only. One-time use. Excludes clearance, gift card, register lane items, jewelry.